Welcome to this week's episode of Compound Your Knowledge, where we cover some research from our blog. This week, we have a special guest with us, John Seed, who a few weeks ago, maybe more than that, maybe a few months ago, I guess, February 13th, wrote a, a, a blog that was posted on our site called Price ETFs and Bond Market Liquidity. It was a great paper to begin with just for the education it provided, but it became a very interesting paper due to what followed in the fixed income markets uh, shortly after John wrote that blog post. So we asked John to come on here and and loosely uh, talk about what has occurred the past few weeks in the bond market. Uh, So Jack and I are going to be having a conversation. We also have Brandon, our chief technology officer at Alpha Architect, and also Trader, to add some color from his side of things. Um, To start, I just want to give a background, quick background on on who John is. John is the founder and president um, of Seed Wealth Management. He began his career at Franklin Resources, where he was an assistant portfolio manager for the quantitative asset arm. Franklin Asset Management Systems. And that is really why uh, it's exciting to me to bring John on here. He can talk with experience that not many can because he's been on the mutual fund side and now he's about as unbiased, I think, as you can get by sitting in the uh, as an independent RIA. Uh, John, what did I what did I miss on your on your bio on, or what more can we say about you to give, to give the, well, I, I, wanna, I have to underplay my experience at Franklin uh, resources. Um, we were the quantitative arm, but back then being a quant was incredibly different than what being a quant is now. We, um, we built uh, and back tested uh, portfolios based on PE ratios, which obviously you guys know better than anybody that cash flow to enterprise value is a much better method of valuation. And then we paired it with growth, historical growth rates and built uh, portfolios. And uh, what was probably most interesting about that experience is that uh, because we were building equally weighted portfolios, um, I quickly realized we had a huge small cap bias, even though we weren't ever planning on doing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And anyway, uh, and then what you can also appreciate is that uh, strategy blew up in the, um, you know, in the 90s uh, when uh, large cap growth took off. And uh, that uh, investment advisory arm of Franklin uh, dissipated fairly soon thereafter. But what informed me more on uh, for this paper was my experience at Credit Suisse um, and then uh, later at um, RBS Securities. Although I started in research um, at Credit Suisse, I uh, moved over to sales and I was involved in structured products. Um, so that included, unfortunately, things like CDOs and uh, you know, subprime mortgages and everything else that a lot of people um, you know, uh, uh, rightfully distrust. Uh, but uh, the incredible learning experience I took away from that was um, you know, that one person's idea of price isn't another person's idea of price. And... Uh, Price is a very nebulous concept because of that under um, any circumstances, but especially under market stress. And so when you're trying to calculate, quote unquote, an NAV, 
you know, based on, you know, one person's idea of price, it's not necessarily um, going to be um, another person's idea of price, uh, of right. appropriate price. Okay. So yeah, just a little background, um, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I included my you know, 20 years at Credit Suisse slash um, uh, RBS. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot, lot, lot of experience. Um, let's transition to Jack then. Jack, could you just give us a quick summary uh, from kind of what you talked about last week in a, in a video where we covered this same topic and you took us through an example of just what's occurring overall uh, in the fixed income markets. Could you just summarize people to catch them up on why we're talking about this in the first place? Yeah. So what happened, and again, this was, uh, I think about two and a half weeks ago now, um, was within different asset classes, uh, there were so-called dislocations, whereby the ETF, when you looked at its final trading price or even its intraday trading price relative to its intraday NAV, they were trading at huge discounts, right? And so there were a couple of examples, even, even on some of these bigger ETFs. Um, uh, but the one that I walked everyone through was in high-yield munis, right? And in high-yield munis, well, you see, I picked HYD, which is, again, just one way in which someone can invest in it. But, you know, over the course of its history, in general, it traded at about, you know, around zero. It's discount premium to NAV. And it just all of a sudden spiked down. And one day it was at trading at 30% discount to NAV. And so here, the natural question becomes, well, what exactly is NAV and what does that mean? And so John's article which was written, again, way before any of this happened, kind of discussed this topic exactly. Um, so we figured we, you know, discuss a little more. Um, and John, maybe can you give us an example on, you know, just in the article you talked about of how sometimes the NAV gets adjusted? You, you walked through some mutual fund examples, right? Yep. Well, I think I actually um... – in the examples that I was using in the mutual fund space, it was because um, when you go back historically, um, mm -hmm. there was only mutual funds, ETFs in uh, you know the bond world. Um, although uh, funds like LQD have been around for a while, I mean the growth has really taken off in the you know last three or four or five years, um, mm -hmm. and it's um, so you didn't have much other than mutual funds. But one of my jobs um, when the world was just mutual funds. Um, and before pricing services became um, as ubiquitous as they are now, was to actually fax over daily prices, you know, to the mutual funds so they could calculate their NAVs. And it was a battle often, not just with the person I was sending the, um, you know, the marks to, but my trader who had other things to do, didn't put a whole lot of effort into it all the time. And then, um, and occasionally would have to have some really heartbreaking news to say like, Hey, you know, this price, you know, we think it's gone down 10%. And the PM would say, what the, it hasn't traded yet. How can you say it went down 10% and be, well, we other things. And it'd be a huge negotiation uh, discussion. And um, one of the funds that I was faxing to was a fund um, out, of, uh, uh, out of Minneapolis called Piper Jaffrey. Um, I forget the exact name, it's in the paper, but they're government securities fund. And 
that was in 94 when the Fed, you know, had stopped, you know, it, it quickly uh, started to tighten again and prices mm -hmm. in some of the derivatives that they owned and they were derivatives off of mortgages ended up gapping, you know, 10 to 20 points. So that was a very early initiation into um, pricing and what was going on in the mutual fund space. Um, yeah, which is very different than equities, right? Because in equities, it's pretty simple to figure, determine what the price is. It's, hey, if I look at Apple, what was you know, the last trade, right? And exactly. Tons of trades every day. And some of these bonds, sometimes they do not trade, which you very highly, <clears throat> very aptly pointed out there. Well, could we, let, let, let's take a, yeah, let, and let's just take a step back to make sure that point is clear. Uh, John, you mentioned pricing services for the mutual funds. Could you describe people what, what that is, how sure. that's involved? Sure. So um, what happened um, when a lot of people got in trouble for, you know, having either salespeople um, like myself changing prices because they wanted to be in good graces with their PM or um, Morgan Keegan had a fund, a mutual fund, where he was overriding some of the prices that he had. Um, they were sued and to, um, to protect themselves from a liability, it became common standard saying, listen, we're not gonna get involved in prices at all, uh, or very minimal, unless we see something really you know, uh, draconian, and we're gonna hire these third-party pricing services to price our portfolios on a regular basis. And um, the pricing services um, get live um, updates uh, through um, uh, something called TRACE. Um, I forget what TRACE stands for right now, but it's, um, it was set up as a regulatory framework. So all corporate bonds and government bonds had to be reported you know, in fairly short order once they traded. And so they would see prices. And so they were able to do that. And even on the bonds that, um, didn't necessarily go to the public in trace, um, the pricing services would get that. And so 99.9% of the time, they do a pretty stand-up job of, of you know, collecting um, you know, pretty accurate prices. But um, we were just at a 0.1% period. And you know, I think their jobs um, were and still are you know, much, much harder um, for a variety of reasons. Right. And, and I guess contrast that with how the equity ETFs are then pricing their bonds. Right. And so um, the equity ETFs, you know, don't rely on pricing services because they have a pricing service. It's called the market. And, you know, regardless of how off price you think some securities are, um, you have to agree that there is a kind of an equilibrium of buyers and sellers around you know, the you know, around a price at any given point in time. So the NAVs um, are calculated at three o'clock um, for both. Um, well, three o'clock I think in um, New York time for um, bond mutual funds, and at four o'clock market close for equity ETFs and equity prices, i.e., the close of the market. So um, equities has a much harder, easier job. I will throw in a caveat, and you guys know more a lot more about this than I do. But international ETFs, you know, don't yeah, have that same uh, ability to price at the close um, because your, yeah, their closes are at different hours um, at four o'clock. Um, yep. But for the most part, that's the uh, the general process. 
Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that's very similar to what happens with, uh, with international ETFs. Uh, yeah, I, I would actually love to hear about that because I, you know, it's, um, it's mind boggling to me, you know, how tight some of those bid asks can be, you know, when all the other markets are closed and, um, you know, how much forth, uh, I would guess a, a huge amount of effort is to, to get a fairly accurate reflection um, of what the prices could be. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. So definitely some overlap there. What, uh, so, so from your seat, John, what, I mean, could, could you give us an example of, of what you saw occurring that day or, you know, on those, that multiple days, um, you know, what was driving these big discrepancies Were was there an issue in the mutual funds, um, pricing? Was there an issue with the ETFs pricing, right? What was, what? just give us context. What was happening? Sure. And let me let me back up a little bit, and I'm going to refer to the example that I made in the paper, um, because at the time it would seem like a fairly large uh, divergence in prices occurred in uh, December of 2018 uh, when we had a little uh, mini uh, liquidity bubble there, and a lot of people were blaming the fact that it was Christmas week because it was at the very end. Um, and so they just the APs are a little bit of sleep on the switch, and that's why you don't, uh, you know, don't see these gaps. And these gaps were big; they were like three percent, which you know, as as um, anyone who's been following it, three percent seems pretty paltry now. And on what what uh, what type of asset class was this? Just to be clear. Uh, this is mainly uh, it, it was mainly in the more illiquid asset classes, um, which is you know probably the most illiquid and the one that brings out the most fear uh, in people is leverage loan market. Okay. Yep. Just so everyone's aware yep. of what you're talking about, the three percent gap. Yep. Yep. Three percent gap in the NAV versus the price and the the ETF that um, that I was looking at was um, called SRLN, or at least the ticker um, is SRLN, and that's, um, uh, I think, you know, I want to double check that so I don't, uh, as you, as you, um, as you do this more and more, you're, uh, you forget, you just only remember the tickers and not the names, but that's uh, Spider uh, Blackstone GSO Senior Loan Fund, and, um, you know, and that, is not the biggest, um, but it's um, an actively managed one versus uh, BKLN, which is um, probably the biggest and most used as a hedge fund. But anyway, I wanted to better understand why the APs, um, and I'm not sure if we want to go into the whole uh, redemption creation um, mechanism, but I'll just brush on it a little bit. But I think we have, yeah, I think we have to. Okay. I mean, you know, well, I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. It's hard not to. Um, so you know, for the uninitiated, you know, usually when you see a, uh, a 3% gap um, in the price of an ETF versus the NAV, there's a huge opportunity for profit um, by uh, what's called the um, uh, APs, the authorized participants, which is um, kind of a strange name, but they're authorized to participate in the creation and redemption of shares. And what that means is they can go in and say, oh my gosh, I bought all this, in my example, SRLN, this leverage loan ETF, I bought it 3% discount to the NAV, and I'm gonna buy as many of them as I can, and then I'm gonna, at the end of the day, swap them, I'm gonna say, okay, I want, here's all the shares, you give me all the loans, 
and I'll sell them at NAV and I'll collect a 3% profit. And um, so you're kind of wondering, well, like, well, why the hell weren't the APs doing this? And that was money on the table. And as we all, you know, I think are all, you know, we always, you know, try to live by the mantra that there's, um, you know, the hundred dollar bill doesn't stay on the floor very long. Yes. And this hundred dollar bill was staying on the floor for a whole long, long time. So I wanted to better understand why the APs weren't taking advantage of these great ARB opportunities. And the reason was, uh, for the most part, not because they were on vacation and sleep at the switch. Um, if you look at the volume that was being traded in SRLN over you know, Christmas week that week, it was, it was you know, four or five times what they ever used to be. Uh, and what was happening was, you know, they would, you know, maybe they would buy a bunch of the SRLN, but they recognized that if they went to, you know, get the loans in return for the shares, and, you know, the ETF would, um, you know, obviously would be down those net assets that they sold out as they retired those shares, that they actually couldn't sell at that NAV price, you know, the price of these loans are being marked. The, the, the market for the individual loans you know, was actually much less liquid and much lower than what the NAV price um, that was being reflected every day was. And, um, and so that, you know, uh, I think brought a lot of people to the understanding of, you know, at, um, at the end of the day, the ETF price is probably more accurate than the uh, NAV price. And it's, um, it's something that we should you know, look at as an attribute, not as a, uh, an Achilles heel in the ETF product. And that all got challenged a little bit more, I think, in the uh, last uh, couple of weeks of, uh, of March. Right. And that was, uh, I mean, that, that was always a, you know, a question I had with the mutual fund structure. And I guess I'll just say a statement here and you can, you can say yes, no, you know, you're an idiot, whatever. As I always understood it, and the question I always had with the, with the fixed income mutual fund structure, I said, okay, in a liquidity crisis scenario, what would happen, you know, or, or as I understand it, when in the mutual fund structure, when you need liquidity, the mutual fund is going to sell out first the cash they have on their books, yep. and then they're going to start to sell out the more liquid holdings they have. But then that means that the people who continue, the investors who continue to own the mutual fund structure or, or that mutual fund uh, now own a you know lower quality basket of stuff than they own before is that is that accurate is that's, that what happened that's, that's very accurate um and you know you saw that um i think you know back in 2008 2009 you know i reference um a fund uh managed by morgan keegan you know back then that owned a bunch of cdos and um you know subprime mortgages and whatnot and you know he you know he couldn't he couldn't meet the withdrawals. And so they shut down the fund, you know, as a precursor. Now in this crisis, what I thought was incredibly interesting was um, a fund called Alpha Centric um, Opportunity Fund. Um, 
they were seeing large liquidations as well. They, you know, this was, and they were invested almost purely in structured products and not just structured products, but, you know, some of the more illiquid um, legacy subprime mezzanine tranches, you know, which, you know, at a normal time, you know, there's some agreement on where prices are, but in periods of illiquidity, they, they can really dry up. And what you saw them do, and this is my own pet theory, so everyone you know um, has their own take on this. But on Sunday, uh, on the twenty second, uh, they threw out a bid wanted list, which is how you sell bonds. So they did this on a Sunday, and you had to come into the office and bid on these bonds, and they were, had like a billion plus, you know, in face amount that they were going to potentially sell. And um, they, they, people actually came in, they bid, you know, they bid the whole list. I had a number of friends, uh, I'm still in contact, I had to go into the office. And in reality, only a, you know, a few hundred million of it traded from what I was told. Mm-hmm. And what I think was going on is they recognized that they had really stale marks and they wanted to get you know, really some really poor bids so that they would be able to show the pricing agencies, hey, you need to knock down our NAV because we're having so many redemptions and everybody, everybody's getting out at a much higher net asset value than what uh, the bonds you know, really can trade for. And as you were alluding to, you know, that is, you know, that's almost criminal to the people who stay in the fund because you know you're you know these people are getting out at much higher prices than that they should be able to and it also promotes a kind of a run on the bank you know because then you realize well hell i don't want to be the last guy holding this mutual fund and um one of the you know reasons i think the etf um structure is so superior is that you know there always is a cost for liquidity and that cost of liquidity is, you know, like a stock, is reflected in what is the clearing price of this ETF at this moment right now, and what is that cost of liquidity? And that was a hugely um, important data point to have uh, in the last couple of weeks of March, and I think it was also a huge opportunity for people that kind of recognize, okay, this is, you know, here's an opportunity where I know I can get paid for providing liquidity. Yeah, I, I, I used I was on Justin Castelli's uh, video podcast, whatever you want to call it, and I, I just used the example of if if I came to you and I said, you know, my house is on fire, I got nothing left, I have no money in the bank, you know, I need twenty dollars to get a hotel room tonight or a motel room, and you tell me, hey Ryan, guess what, my house is on fire too, I need twenty dollars to get a hotel room, like you know. like time matters, right? If you need that $20 today and you're telling me I can't give it to you in an hour, I can't give it to you in, you know, two days. Well, that's going to have a cost, right? That has an additional cost. Yes. Um, And I thought the the most interesting thing that I saw, um, you know, I saw some crazy things that week, you know, and, you know, one of the, one thing that I want to point out is that SRLN and its uh, brethren uh, in the leverage loan space, they actually saw less di- uh, divergence around their NAV than some of the, you would think would be much more liquid product, um, like um, short investment grade floating rate ETFs. 
yeah those are those are supposed to be transparent in the sense that they're on trace you know unlike uh, leverage loans which are not so everyone can see where the underlying is trading they're safe i mean these are you know bonds issued by wells fargo jp morgan bank of america i mean they're heavily financials you know they're two to three or four year floaters right so it's not like there's a huge uh, discrepancy on what they should be trading and these funds traded at you know 10 12 percent discounts you know to their nav you know and their nav was down quite substantially but uh, to me that was like holy how how in the world are the ap's not taking advantage of this you know you would think that they would be all over this well the the alternative and i think this is why if we want to talk about you know what's the price if like, let's just say, and I, I don't know exactly what ticker you're talking about, John, but let's just pretend, you know, it's ticker ABC and you own a hundred million of it and an AP and you go to sell it and it gets sold at, you know, 12% below NAV, right? Well, the APs are going to be competing for that bid, right? Like if you're smart, you're not just going to yeah. buy it out. And what that probably means is if the AP goes and buys your hundred million dollars worth of the ETF shares, what they're saying is, hey, if if we do redeem these ETF shares for the corresponding bonds, the price of the bonds, we're going to mark them at this, right? Because otherwise it's free money, right? right. And, and in general, we would all assume that, that as you said before, isn't going to just sit on the floor. So it's not like the APs aren't taking advantage of it when it's trading at 12% discount to NAV. It's what they're saying is, hey, the real NAV should be 12% low. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, uh, you know, I'm, there's two things on that. You know, and this is where the whole concept of price comes in. Um, if, you, if you look at the price of the underlying bonds, and I was you know, looking at that, and you would see that they, in fact, you know, the NAV and their price for a lot of this liquid stuff, was uh, not too far off where bonds were trading. The difference was, is that the amount of bonds that were trading during this period was minuscule. Mm -hmm. There was hardly anything trading. Yep. So you could say, I think with a clear conscience, hey, the NAV was actually fairly accurate for a small amount of bonds to trade okay. at any given point yep. in time. Yep. But you know, what was happening in the ETF space is that they were trading a gazillion dollars worth of bonds, yep. where they weren't trading a gazillion worth of bonds, they were trading a gazillion worth of, you know, ETFs. And yep. so there's a huge gap between trading a few bonds, and you know, that's one price, mm -hmm. versus a whole slew of bonds, which is another price. And that's, you know, so the price of ETF was, what is the price for a whole slew of bonds at this moment? You know, yeah. And, you remember, you know, Friday the 23rd was pretty terrifying, um, or actually the 19th or whatever it was. And the, you know, and so the APs don't want to leave a $100 bill on the floor. They were like, okay, I, you know, to, re to redeem all this and to collect all these bonds, I don't know where I can get out of these things. Yeah. Because all I'm seeing is, you know, like a really small amount you know of uh, bonds being traded and and uh and then we can get this in more details but you know then you have the added component of 
you might be bidding on this ETF at you know 9:30 a.m. You don't know what your NAV is going to be, you know, until one o'clock, you know, or three o'clock p.m. So you're having to take that huge, you know, gap of time, you know, before you know you can actually, you know, complete that arm. Um, and you, um, and so they, you know, you know, that's a concept called slippage. And you don't want to, you know, you have to minimize your slippage, you know, of where you're transacting the ETF and where your NAV is eventually going to be once you, um, you know, once you do it. In addition, you, you run the risk of, you know, can I transact at, at, a, um, at that NAV price? Or in the case of a lot of these floating rate funds and shorter ETFs, instead of uh, in-kind settle, so in other words, instead of actually delivering you bonds, they will actually execute and deliver you cash. But again, you're running the risk of where they're going to execute at. And the... Uh, well, that's the, that's the cash in lieu problem, right? Yeah. And then um, you, you still have effectively have the same problem because now someone has to go and actually... Yes, yeah. so now you're reliant on the PM. And he's going to charge back to you whatever cost. If you got, you know, 2% you know, below NAV, he's going to say, you know, hey, you're going to, you know. Yeah, it's getting billed right back. You get a 2%, you know, so you're like, holy crap, you know, I never signed up for this, you know, when I did it. Now, you might, you know, the portfolio managers want to, you know, want to, don't want to sink their APs. They want to keep them providing liquid markets. So there's a constant flow of information you know, what the APs feel like they can liquidate at any given point in time and what the portfolio managers, you know, would like to liquidate. And, you know, it's a, you know, there's a you know, large flow of information. So that is, um, uh, so that's not uh, catching anybody off guard too much. And, and yeah. I, I should expand on that probably just a little bit more um, in that, you know, what happens in the fixed income world, because only, 20% of corporate bonds typically trade in any you know, day anyway, that, you know, you never are selling a sliver of your whole fund. You are, you know, creating a basket of bonds, you know, that you're sending out to, uh, to the APs and say, this is what I'd like to, to trade. And then they, you know, the APs give them feedback. And that basket is as uh, small as just one bond. I mean, it doesn't, you know, and it's typically not more than, you know, a few couple dozen at least that i've witnessed yeah well so let's just let's let's summarize to this point what we've kind of figured out then it seems the the mutual fund pricing the, the way they rely on these pricing services uh created a I don't know what the proper term would be, but like a, an inefficient market that potentially harmed the current shareholders of mutual right. funds. Yep. Um, and the ETF structure, even though, you know, maybe in some cases it seemingly went down, but that was kind of telling you what the price was. Is that a good, you know, 30,000 foot summary to, yeah, what I like to I like to think of it as uh, how I like to explain it is there is a price for liquidity, right? And yes. who who pays that price? And in the mutual fund, when you're guaranteed getting out of NAV, the person being the person 
that has to eat that liquidity price is the shareholders that stay in that fund. Because yes. the people who left the fund get out at way too high of a price. Got Whereas it. when you are selling an ETF, no matter how illiquid the bond is, you're being charged that liquidity price by having to trade at you know, whatever discount you have. And yeah. vice versa, and I think this is where the opportunity comes, if you're paying attention, you can say, listen, I got some extra cash at hand. This guy really wants to get out of these uh, ETFs. You know, I'll provide liquidity, you know, and the AP is the one who's supposed to be doing that. But sometimes, as I was kind of alluding to, that's really hard for them to do um, efficiently when there's, you know, so little transparency on where uh, bonds are trading at um, in any type of size. So, it's, so it's just who should pay for that illiquidity? Should it be the seller? I would think, or should it be the bondholders, uh, the mutual fund holders that stay in the fund? Great. And then what, so, so you're, you're a financial advisor, wealth manager, you know, what, how do you think financial advisors should, should position their portfolios based off of, you know, everything we've discussed? And, um, and I don't mean, you know, what type of bond should I own? I just simply mean, is there a risk going forward where you, you shouldn't maybe own fixed income uh, uh, bonds in a mutual fund structure and you should own them in an ETF or, you know, how, how should you think about this in a, for, for your portfolio as an advisor? Well, I think this is a good opportunity to get out of mutual funds because uh, you're, you're, you're no longer locked in at um, old prices and you can probably take a tax loss and get out of them. Um, because I think, you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for potential, you know, um, problems and the you know, buying and selling of, of shares at the NAV, you know, is, you know, costly if you're going to be a long-term shareholder in that mutual fund, you know, because everyone's getting out of the NAV, but the PM's having to buy and sell, you know, at the bid and the ask. And, um, and I don't think that's the appropriate way to do it. Um, let the buyer and seller, you know, pay that bid ask. Uh, price. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, I'm hoping that it's a wake up call uh, to people that are in mutual funds um, saying, oh man, this, these transaction costs can be actually you know, fairly high. And the other thing that I think ETFs do, um, which mutual funds don't, is that you really need to understand what is in these mutual funds and what, what's in these ETFs. And if you ever do any real digging, it's almost impossible to find out what's in a mutual fund. You know, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, they'll put it in their annual report and, you know, but you don't know if it's a very um, indecipherable description of what they own. You don't know, you know, it might be a CLO, but you don't know where in the capital structure it necessarily is. You don't, you know, it's just a very, very hard time figuring out what exactly they own. Um, whereas uh, in, um, in the ETF space, you know, you can download their portfolio and you get exactly the QCIPs that they own and where they mark them and you can do that on a daily basis. And so you can, um, you can track, okay, is this, are these risks that I really want to take? Uh, so there's much, much more transparency and I think um, it takes a little bit of effort, but I think kind of recognizing, all right, what you own um, is, uh, is really, really important. And, and I'll just add one other thing. You know, one of the things that we recognize at, at Franklin Resources, and I'll shoot me for saying this, but 
you know, unfortunately yield cells, you know, um, and in the bond world. And so you have to recognize that that's the, you know, that's the best marketing tool you have. And a lazy uh, investment advisor is going to look at that and then go and find the you know, highest yielding mutual fund. Well, almost by nature, any high yielding mutual fund is going to own the most illiquid, you know, credit dicey, you know, bonds that there are. And Jack, I'm sure you probably covered this in, you know, when you're looking at the high yield muni world. So you, you start digging in what's in those things and you're like, holy Toledo, <laughs> I would never like, what did I get myself into? Yep. Yeah. So, and that's a second point if, is it, is if advisors are screening bond funds on yield, the liquidity discount could be even worse potentially on these higher yielding type products. Right. The fund structure. Yeah. Right. And that's, um, you know, and so I'm a, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, an actively managed um, uh, fixed income uh, because you, you aren't having to pay people for liquidity. You can provide liquidity and get paid for that, you know, more thoughtfully. And, you know, and as I, um, written about in the past you know the the whole concept of an index is a little bit of a um you know made up you know uh, concept anyway and you know it's especially made up when it comes to fixed income it certainly doesn't represent you know it only represents a small fraction of the fixed income world so you're really not indexing you know in any true sense of the word um you're you're just um, indexing to, you know, Barclays sense of the word or Bloomberg sense of the word or somebody else's sense of the word. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess what I, I just say, what, what did we miss? What, what, what should I be asking you here, John, or what, you know, what, what other topics did, did we not have? The one thing that I, um, that I didn't fully appreciate that I do now is, um, you know, there is, you know, it, it's almost a little too simplistic to say that the ETFs are really the true um, price, you know, of bonds versus, you know, um, the individual bonds. As, you know, I touched upon with Jack, you know, it's, you know, what are we talking about? Are we talking in 100 million bonds or are we talking, you know, 100,000 bonds? There's very different prices in that. And then uh, what I found, which was interesting, is that even bonds that are, even bond ETFs that, were very, very similar in their makeup. One might be selling at a 3% discount to its NAV, and another one might be trading at 7% discount to its NAV. So you're asking me, like, you know, what do I, you know, think people should look at? It's not typically a concern you need to, but over the course of those two weeks in, uh, in March, you know, it paid a lot to be able to say, okay, you know, I want to buy these three floating rate corporate funds. I want to buy this one because it's trading at a much higher discount. Right. Yeah. And, um, and then I just, you know, but, but you have had the need to do some digging beforehand and say, okay, this one is all corporates. This one is corporates and 20% asset backed securities of the 20%, you know, how much is it in leverage loans? Um, and that's, that's harder to do, but it's still something that I think is worthwhile to do. Right. And you got to have real knowledge to have the confidence to go into the market when something seemingly is very broken uh, and buy knowing that, you know, you're going to be rewarded for that, right? That's, a, that's not something everybody can do either. 
Um, no, but it's um, it, it's not as hard as um, you know you would. Uh, you, I don't think you should throw up your hands. You know, you yeah. should feel comfortable that you that you understand what's going on. And now we have a lot of um, you know, you know, like I said, you have a better chance of doing that in the world of ETFs than you do in the world of mutual funds. Right, Jack. Jack, you got any other questions, Brandon? Yeah, this has been great. Yeah, I'm sorry to yak. You know, I will tell you, um, you know, Invesco um, is actually going to be putting out a paper um, fairly soon. And, you know, by the time this is out, maybe I can link to it. Um, they've, they've, um, they've done some, they've been very, very helpful uh, to me. And um, this people over uh, State Street, this, uh, the spider people have been very helpful as well. I want to give them a shout out. They were, um, spend a lot of hours on the phone making sure that I fully understood what was going on. Um, and um, people are trying to do the right thing, um, but they're not, um, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be just wary of who's out there trying to, you know, boost their yield at the expense of uh, liquidity. Um, and putting a little bit of time into figuring that out is important. Transparency helps. Transparency is king. Huge believer in that. And that's why I love ETFs over mutual funds. <laughs> one of the reasons. Tax efficiency is another one. That's it. <laughs> that's what we got this week for Compound Your Knowledge. We'll see you guys again soon. Thanks again for your time, guys. Right. Thanks, John. Cheers. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC. All rights reserved.